Yesterday I was down in Torquay just checking on the delinquents who were at the church weekend away. Um, and they said they would be with us in spirit. And I noticed that you've reserved the seats for their spirits in the front here. But I would suggest, you know, leadership team, can't we reduce the price for the front row and increase it for the back row? I'm sure it would work so much better. Are you not happy with me there? For those who are visitors, a very, very genuine apology. There's nobody doing coffee today. I mean, this is just not on. This is a Baptist church. How can we have a service without coffee? It it can't be done. I'm sure we could be thrown out the Baptist Union for that. But rest assured, if you are a visitor, there is normally coffee. Ordinary coffee, decaf coffee, hot coffee, cold coffee, and even tea. So, there we are. Um, I'm just trying to move things here. I just seem to have so much stuff on the platform, I can't quite find where I am. We're going to be looking at the book of Malachi this morning. Now, I know that's a book that most of you have memorized and know intimately, but we'll still have a look at it. We're going to have a look at chapter 1, and I'm just going to read it quickly. Well, maybe not that quickly, but I'm going to read it. It's only 14 verses, and then we will pray, and then we'll have a look at it. So, here we are. Malachi chapter 1 says this, An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the nation. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. You may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a land whose people are under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible when you bring blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors 
so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not accept offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name is great amongst the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table, by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled. And of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, oh, what a burden. You sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty, when you bring injured, crippled or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices. Should I accept them from your hands? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Nick, I feel you the person I need to pick on. Okay. Yesterday I was down in Torquay. Uh, the reason I went down was because I was asked to quote-unquote entertain that group down there uh, and run a barn dance for them last night, which I did. And as a result, I have virtually no voice. Please, sir, could I have a glass of water? Right. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Malachi is a very important book. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And there was kind of a period of 400 years after that when, when it seemed as if God didn't have anything to say. Just silence. And then we come into the New Testament period. So it's a, it's a critical bridge, if you like, between the old and the new. A book which has got vitally important messages. The nation had been exiled for many years, and then they'd been allowed to return and rebuild their land. And under the leadership of men like Ezra, they had rebuilt, thank you, the temple, and under men like Nick, they had quenched their thirst. And under Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. And great things had happened, and then uh, nothing. Nothing. The great miracles of the past just seemed to stop. And the people became disillusioned. As they looked around them, their land was still a small province in the backwaters of the Persian Empire. The glorious future that had been promised by prophets like Haggai and Zechariah just hadn't arrived. The Messiah hadn't come. And life kind of just drifted along and as a result their worship degenerated really into a ritual. They went through the motions. Now, I want to suggest that the church today finds itself in a very similar position. 
The great miracles of the Bible seem to be so long ago. Oh, we read books of what God did even a hundred years ago. But now? Now we come to church and moan because there's no coffee. After 2,000 years, Christianity is in many ways still just a, a little province, a little backwater. We consider it a little bit weird and odd by the rest of the world. And looking around, I can understand why. The glorious promises that are made in the New Testament just seems so long ago. Sure, we know God's going to return one day. Probably. Maybe. Sometime. Who knows? And we just drift along. And the result of that is that our worship very often degenerates into ritual. Yes, the Messiah is coming. But is he coming soon? Does it impact on our lives? Does it change the way we live in any way? I, I, I suggest to you that the book of Malachi is relevant today as much as it was way back when it was written because the church finds itself in the same position now as they did then. Now, I wish I had... I know you can be grateful that I don't, but I wish I had eight consecutive sermons here so I could go through the whole book of Malachi in some detail, not in full detail. But I've only got another couple of minutes. Relax, it's okay. And if I was to summarise the whole book in just a simple phrase, it's this, return to the Lord. That's what Malachi is saying throughout the book. Come back to God. The book contains tremendous promises, tremendous encouragement and some very strong correction from God. Now I'm going to try and skim through chapter 1. I will not do it justice. I know I won't because there's just too much there. I, I tried to see if I could divide it and just do half of it but it doesn't work so you'll just have to bear with me. <coughs> And if I end up raising additional questions in your mind, good. Discuss them at your life group this week. Make your life group leader's task even more difficult by asking the awkward questions that I don't answer. And yes, you will have permission to do that because I'm writing the notes for your life groups. <laughs> and I'll put some awkward questions in it for you to ask them. But the book begins with these amazing words. An oracle, the word of the Lord. What on earth is an oracle? Well, if it helps, the original word was masa. Now, I'm sure that satisfies you all and you need no further information, but actually, the word can't be translated into English. There is no equivalent English word. So, I, all I can do is try to encapsulate it in a few sentences by saying that word means literally a burden placed on someone that they have to do. An obligation that they have to fulfill. 
a job that they are doing because they have to do it. Now that may seem a strange way for a prophet to begin his, his writing, but he says, look, this is something God has put on me and I have no choice but to share it with you. I'm not saying these things because I'm enjoying saying these things. I'm saying these things because God told me I must. This is not a message from me, Malachi. This is a message from God that he gave to me. In fact, the word Malachi, his name means messenger. And I I kind of picture him a little bit like a modern-day ambassador who is representing his country. And when he speaks, he doesn't say necessarily what he would like to say. He says what his government has told him to say. I am here speaking on behalf of my government, and this is their message. And I wonder how many times ambassadors wish they could find somebody else to deliver some of those messages. Malachi says, I'm the messenger. And then he begins with six very important words. I can't think of any more important words than these. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. In fact, a slightly more accurate Full translation would be, I have loved you, I still love you, and I'll always love you, says the Lord. That's in a continuous presence, that, that verb in the, in the original. I love you, you, you. Now, this wasn't news to the Israelites. They knew it. They'd been taught it for centuries. As far back as the book of Deuteronomy, this is explicitly taught to them. But they needed reminding, as I suspect we often need reminding. And as God reminds them, what is their response? Wow, fantastic. Thank you, God. Well, let me praise you, God. Isn't that fantastic, God? Uh, No. No, their response is one of unbelief. God says, I love you, and they say, huh. How? How have you loved us? Talk's cheap, God. I I don't see any evidence of your love. Have we ever fallen into that trap? As a Christian, you know God loves you, but do you just know it intellectually in an abstract sort of way? Do you sometimes find yourself doubting his love? Do you find yourself asking the same question these these Israelites asked 2,400 years ago? Lord, you say you love me, but look at my life. I I, I don't see it, Lord. Now, God's response is very unusual. And this is one of the things you can have fun with at your life group. Because I don't have time to go into it in detail. It's a whole theological minefield. And so I'll just simply skim over it. But God's answer to them was, you say, how have I loved you? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Sorry, God. Were were you listening to a different channel? We asked you, how have you loved us? And you say, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Of course he was Jacob's brother. He was his twin. We all know that. What's it got to do with anything? And God says, 
Yet I loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Basically, God is saying, you want to know how I've shown my love for you? I've demonstrated my love for you by choosing you to be my own. I didn't choose you just because you're a descendant of Jacob. I chose you because I chose you. In Romans chapter 9 we read this, Rebecca's children had one and the same father, Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose might stand, she was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I did not. God says, I chose you and I'm demonstrating my love because I chose you. Now this may come as a shock to some of you, but God didn't choose you because you're a wonderful person. Now not even you, Nathan. I mean, you are a wonderful person, I'm sure, but now, that's not the reason God chose you. He didn't choose you because you're a Baptist. He didn't choose you because you're kind, thoughtful, generous or anything else. God chose you because God chose you. In his infinite wisdom, he loves you. Now, I don't know all of you that intimately, but I do know myself. And you know something? If I was God, I would not have chosen me. Because I don't deserve it. There's nothing in me that deserves to be chosen by God. There are far, far better people out there. But God chose me. And he said, Ray, I love you. He says that to you today. As you look around at your life... I don't know, what's the biggest fear you have? What's the biggest problem you have? What's the biggest worry you have? What, what is the thing that is weighing down on your heart the most? Well, whatever it is, no matter how big it is, remember this, God loves you. And there's no problem too big for him to handle. I saw a comment on Facebook the other day which, which encouraged me and blessed me. Somebody put up there, when God called you and gave you a job to do, he factored in your stupidity. Yeah, it's not because I'm bright than anything else. God factored in my stupidity, but he still chose me and he still loves me and he'll still look after me. Love is strange though, isn't it? It demands a response. When you love someone, you want them to respond to that love. And the only thing that can prevent God's love from working in your life and in your heart and in your family and in your situation is your failure to respond to it. God wants you to respond to his love. This is a mind-blowing statement, and I almost hesitate to say it, but think about it. You have the power to stop God working in your life. 
by refusing to respond to him. Don't. Respond to God's love and say, thank you, Lord, for your love. Now, let's get very practical. How should you respond? Well, you should respond with joy. What could be more joyful than the fact that God loves you? You should respond with faith. If God loves you, you can trust him. You should respond in obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, do what I tell you. And finally, you should respond in praise and worship. Now, as I said, we could spend ages on those six verses, or five verses, but let's skim on to the next half of the chapter because there's some important stuff there as well and I've still got a couple of minutes and I intend to take them. Through Malachi, God now moves his focus from the nation as a whole to specifically the priests. Bear in mind the priests were very powerful people. Unlike our pastors here, the priests actually had power. (laughs) They had status. They, they, They were important. In fact, the priests were the only ones who had the legal right to speak out on God's behalf. Malachi was not a priest. And so this person who's not a priest speaks out to the people who are priests and it tells them what they're doing wrong. And it brings them a message of correction from God. No wonder he said, this is an oracle. This is a burden God put on me. I wish I didn't have to say this, but I've got to tell you, God's got something to say to you and he's not happy with you. And he begins by stating two self-evident truths. He says, a son honours his father. And I can imagine the priest sitting around there saying, oh, of course that's right. Son's got to honour his father. That's the way it should be. That's, that's, that's what the Bible teaches. Honour your parents. Yes, son honours his father. Well said, Malachi. That's good. Then Malachi says, a servant honours his master. Well, yes, absolutely. And the word servant there could actually be translated as slave. A slave does what he's told. Yes. A servant obeys his master. Hmm. Then God takes these two truths and he applies them. And he says, you agree that a son should honour his father. You agree that a servant should honour his master. Please remember this. You claim that I am your father. You claim that I am your master. Why don't you honour me? Hold it there, Malachi, you're getting personal here. God says, you have not honoured me. You have shown contempt for my name. In biblical times, a person's name was considered very significant. Your name reflected your character. And the priests knew the importance of of the name of God. In fact, we told us the ancient scribes were copying the Old Testament. They went to great lengths to safeguard the holiness 
of the name of God. And we told that when they came to the name of God, they would stop writing, get up, wash, take a fresh pen, write the name of God, put the pen back, wash their hands again, come back, pick up the old pen and continue writing. Because they didn't want to defile the name of God. It was so holy. They wouldn't even speak the name Jehovah. They used the word Adonai instead. Because the name of God was just so holy. And God says, you have shown contempt for my name. Now, in the context of this chapter, what name is God referring to? Because we know that God is called various names throughout the Bible. Well, the NIV in this section calls him the Lord Almighty. Other translations call him the Lord of Hosts. And I'm just going to take a minute to, to, to pick that apart because that phrase is an important biblical phrase. The words translate as the Lord of Hosts, the Lord Almighty. In fact, that phrase is found over 300 times in the Old Testament. It's found 24 times in the four short chapters of Malachi. So you're not going to understand Malachi unless you know what that means. The easy answer is to just give you the direct translation of it there. And you think I'm going to trans- pronounce that. You've got another thing coming, mate. I've got no idea how to pronounce that. But that is the word that was used. And when we look, we find that that word, that phrase, contains so much. It's a phrase that... Sorry, my eyes went funny there. It's a phrase that refers to God as the God who's in charge of the armies of the world. It's a phrase that refers to him as the one who's in charge of the sun, moon, stars and angels. It's a phrase that basically says he is the one who is in ultimate authority of all the universe. And so God says, my name is the Lord of hosts, the supreme ruler of everything, both in heaven and on earth. That's who I am. So why are you showing contempt for my name? And typically the priests respond. and say, what are you talking about? How have we shown contempt for your name? God says, well, through your sacrifices. The Old Testament contains chapter after chapter after chapter devoted to detailed descriptions of the various sacrifices that applied in the Old Testament. Doesn't apply in the New Testament because Jesus is our sacrifice. But in the Old Testament there were specific sacrifices for all sorts of things and lots of detailed instructions, but no matter what was being offered, a bird, a lamb, a bull, grain, whatever, God said it must be the best you have. It must be without blemish. He says, I'm not prepared to accept second best. And let's be honest. 
If he is God Almighty, why should he take second best? Why why would we insult him by giving him second best? And the priests knew this, and yet they didn't live accordingly. He said, you offer defiled food on my altar. You bring blind animals for sacrifice. You sacrifice crippled and diseased animals. Verse 13 says, you bring injured, crippled and diseased animals and you offer them as a sacrifice. Then God says, try offering these to the governor. Would he be pleased with you? (laughs) No, he'd probably have you put to death. So it wasn't that they didn't sacrifice. It was that their sacrifice itself was an insult to God. They were giving God the leftovers. They were giving God just whatever there was. It's just an attitude that said, oh, anything will do, it's only for God. What's it matter? Why had they developed this attitude? Well, we said this at the beginning. Their religion had degenerated into a ritual. There was a false piety. They'd forgotten the promises which God had made. They had lost sight of who they were worshipping, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the one who loved them and chose them. And God was not pleased. Friends, we're in danger of exactly the same condemnation from God. If you're a Christian, God is your Father. Jesus said to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And as our Father, he expects and is entitled to your honour. Not only is he your Father, but as a Christian, he is also your Master. Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ. Malachi addressed his remarks to the priests. In the New Testament, we are told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God. So Malachi is addressing his words to those who claim God as their father, God as their master, and who are there to minister as God's priests. That's you and me. That's you and me. And I believe God would ask you and I this morning the same question he asked them all those years ago. Today, as I said, we no longer have to offer sacrifices. We don't bring crippled and lame sheep and bulls and birds to church. But we are still told to offer our lives to God. We are told that we are to be a living sacrifice. In 1 Peter 2.5 we are reminded that we should offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Romans 6.13 we are told to offer ourselves to God. Hebrews 13.5 through Jesus let us continually offer to God the sacrifice of praise. Serving God had become a drudgery in the days of Malachi. Verse 13, God said to them, you say, what a burden. 
What a drudgery. What a ritual. Do we ever do that? I suppose I'd better read my Bible. Yeah, I suppose I should pray. Do I really feel like going to church this morning? You know, it's a little cold outside. It might even rain sometime later this week. Should I really get out of bed and go to church? Ah, I've got a lawn that needs mowing. That's got nothing to do with it. I actually do have a lawn that needs mowing, so any of you are free this week. <laughs> Seriously. What sort of sacrifices have you been offering to God lately? Are you giving God the modern equivalent of blind, diseased, injured, second-rate sacrifices? He won't accept them. He won't. He told the priests of Malachi's day that it would actually be better if they just shut the temple and didn't offer anything. So they'd rather have nothing than the second-hand leftovers you're giving me. In Revelation it says this, These are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds, that they are neither hot nor cold. I wish they were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Let me give you the Ray White paraphrase of that. God says, lukewarm Christians make me sick. That's what it says. Lukewarm Christians who are neither hot nor cold make me want to spit them out of my mouth. They make me sick. God would rather you were cold than lukewarm. And I believe that many of us, and I include myself in this very often, have degenerated into a lukewarm Christianity. Please, please, please put God first in your life. Please, from today onward, say, God, I'm no longer going to offer you second-hand leftovers. God, I'm going to give you my best. When I do something for you, I'm going to do it wholeheartedly. God, I want to worship you because you're God. God, I thank you for your love for me. God, I don't want to just go through the motions anymore. I want to live to glorify your name. The basic message of Malachi, return to the Lord. He deserves and he demands your best, not your leftovers. Father, I realize that I'm preaching to myself as much as to anybody else, maybe even more so. Father, I'm sorry when I've given you leftovers. When I've come to the end of a day and I've been so busy doing all sorts of things that I want to do and I think, oh, I better have a quick Bible reading. Lord, help each one of us to recognize afresh who you are, the Lord God Almighty. 
Help us to recognize afresh that you love us and have chosen us. And help us, Lord, to bring sacrifices to you that are acceptable and pleasing in your sight so that you can say when the time comes, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.